Well, Jesus has just dealt with the accusation brought by the Pharisees that his disciples have just committed a great Sabbath day sin by plucking and eating grain from the fields as they were walking along. And his complete rebuttal of those claims comes as he heals the withered hand of one of the men attending Sabbath worship in the synagogue. Jesus impresses upon us there that the Sabbath is given, well, firstly, for the worship of God, because that's why they were in the synagogue, and for our spiritual rest and edification. But it's also a day when we may do that which is good in God's eyes, and that certainly includes caring for others in acts of necessity or mercy. The Pharisees, however, they are having none of it and their anger and their objection just grows hotter and stronger to the point where, in verse 14, their aim is to destroy Jesus. That's a pretty emphatic position, isn't it? They were out to kill him. And, and so our first lesson this morning is going to be an obvious one based on the reaction of those Pharisees. Uh, it's a wording that's been used by many regarding verse 14. And it's simply this, the desperate wickedness of the human heart. The hearts of the Pharisees are only growing harder with each passing altercation that they have with Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 7, we read there that Jesus is described as one who is holy, who is harmless, who is undefiled, and who is separate from sinners. And the hearts of sinners have a natural disposition which is in complete contrast to that and which is a complete opposition to that, in complete opposition to God and especially in complete opposition to the person of Jesus Christ. And why especially against Jesus? Well, it's because he is the way and the truth and the life. And he's the only way. He's the only truth. And he's the only life. It's because in the person of Jesus, I discover that I cannot get away with trying to invent a God of my own. A God who is acceptable to me. Because a God of my own making is a God that I have fashioned in such a way that I choose how I relate to that God. I get to decide what pleases that God. I get to decide what that God requires of me. And it leaves me able to still think whatever I want to think. And it still leaves me able to do whatever I want to do. It still leaves me able to live however I wish to live because it's a God of my own invention. But in the person of Jesus, the table gets turned completely because Jesus is God revealing God as God is. Here is God revealing eternal, unchanging, and for sinners, uncomfortable truth. Here is God revealing to me 
and to you how things really are. And particularly how things really are between sinners and a holy God. Not that these things are completely new, and they're certainly not new to the people of Israel. But the Pharisees have hoodwinked themselves and all the people in their sinful, muddle-headed, self-centered thinking. They've been successfully portraying themselves and all that they believe and all that they live by as good and acceptable in the sight of God. We know the Scriptures better than all of you commoners. This is what pleases God. Well, that's how it's been for the Pharisees until now. But then Jesus comes along and he exposes all of their pretense and all of their falsehood for what it truly is. Now, these Pharisees, these are sinners whose wickedness in a particular way is clothed in false religion. But in our day, that tends not to be the case. In our day, most people's wickedness is displayed by a complete rejection of all religion and a rejection of, even of any notion of God and especially of any notion of a God to whom I'm, accept- I'm accountable and especially the notion of any God by whom one day I will be judged. Instead, wickedness today is displayed in this sense. I am my own God and I can do whatever I like. But like the Pharisees, people today recognise that the person of Jesus threatens that whole belief system because of his exclusive claims. And so the world today, although it sees things from a completely different perspective than that of the Pharisees, seeing things largely from a secular, godless, humanistic point of view, nevertheless finds that Jesus is exactly the same kind of threat to them that he was to the Pharisees all those years ago. That Jesus will ruin everything that I hold dear. And so I'm going to dismiss him. I'll ridicule him. I'll pour scorn on him. I'll treat him as a joke. I'll treat him as something outdated and outmoded that we've, we've evolved far beyond those kinds of things. And out from sinful hearts flows hatred towards God and towards those who love him. Uh, J.C. Ryle makes these comments on these issues about these Pharisees and others who are like them. This is human nature appearing in its true colours, he says. The unconverted heart hates God and will show its hatred whenever it dares and whenever it has a favourable opportunity. It will persecute God's witnesses. It will dislike all who have anything of God's mind and are renewed after his image. Why were so many of the prophets killed? Why were the names of the apostles cast out as evil by the Jews? Why were the early martyrs slain? Why were the reformers burned at the stake? 
not for any sins that they had sinned. It's not to say that they were sinless, but that's not the reason those things were done to them. It wasn't because of any wickedness that they'd committed. They suffered because they were godly men. And human nature, unconverted, hates godly men because it hates God. And so the Apostle John, in the third chapter of his first letter, says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised. Don't be amazed. Don't suppose that you somehow should receive better than that. Don't marvel when the world hates you. Do you recall Paul's message to us last Sunday evening in Romans 12? Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here's the thing, the less like the world and the more like Christ you become, the more the world will hate you, just as it hated Christ. And it's because of the desperate wickedness of the unconverted, sinful human heart. And if you know that you're someone who's unconverted this morning, let me give you something to think upon. When we think of great wickedness, wickedness is not restricted just to the kinds of terrible things that are happening in places like Ukraine just now, for example. That is desperately wicked. But that's not all that wickedness is. And don't kid yourself into thinking because, because you've never done stuff like that, that you cannot be classified as wicked. Before God, there is a great wickedness of another sort. It is this, it is for you to be told of God's great love for you. It is for you to be shown the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and then to decide that you couldn't care less. That is a very great wickedness in God's eyes, for you to think of his son like that, for you to reject his son like that, that you will carry on living your life as though Christ doesn't exist which is exactly what the Pharisees want to do. They just want to be done with him. They just want to be rid with him so that they can carry on living their lives like he doesn't exist. It's a very great wickedness in the human heart. And for those of us who are Christians, doesn't that also show us and doesn't that remind us the kind of power that is needed in order to bring about the kind of change of heart and mind that is required in order that anyone might be saved and converted to Christ, even you and me. The tendency, perhaps, is to think that these Pharisees, well, surely they're rather at the extreme end of things. Uh, those, those who refuse to accept Jesus as Saviour and Lord, well, the Pharisees, they're, they're, right, they're on the extreme end the normal people were much more open to Christ, surely. 
Well, there's a sense in which they were. But actually, the New Testament record doesn't really allow us to come to that kind of conclusion. Because by the end of his earthly ministry, given the hundreds of thousands of people that must have heard and seen him, he actually had relatively few followers at the end. They were numbered in their hundreds, not in their thousands, not in their tens of thousands, just hundreds. And it, it reminds us and it causes us to, to remember there is no nice, comfortable formula for leading someone to Christ. In fact, it's impossible for any Christian to lead an unbeliever to Christ. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Do not think that you can take an unbeliever by the hand and guide them through a particular method of explaining the gospel and at the end of it, what do you know? By the, time by the time you've finished, they'll be so convinced by what you've just explained to them and the way that you've explained it that they, sim they simply cannot help themselves but accept Christ as their saviour. Now that's not to say that it's wrong to have a particular way that you've got to share the gospel. It's absolutely fine. But do not think for one moment that you can come up with a formula for explaining the gospel which guarantees results. If such a thing were possible, would Jesus not have known it? If such a thing were possible, would Jesus not have been the best exponent of it? If such a thing were possible, would he not have used it so that we do not read about the Pharisees what we do read about them in verse 14? If it were possible just to speak to men and women in a certain way so that because of the way you've spoken to them, they just automatically follow after Christ, would Jesus not have done that with the Pharisees? Would they not have followed after him? The human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And it needs power far beyond anything that you or I possess to change that heart. Now we do need to give ourselves to faithful, consistent proclaiming of the gospel. But unless God moves in the sinner by the power of his spirit, they will remain as spiritually dead as the day they were conceived in the womb. And so we need to pray. We need to pray for the preaching of the gospel and that it's done faithfully. Pray that it's done faithfully today in churches up and down the land and across the world. Pray that it's done faithfully this afternoon down in Clandidno. Pray that it's done faithfully tomorrow. But pray that God, by his Spirit, would do his converting work. Because sinful hearts are hard, impenitent, unrepentant. And only the power of God can change them.
And then we see in the Lord Jesus the humble, obedient servant. The, the Pharisees are against him. He realises that that's the case. And he doesn't put up a huge fight. He doesn't tackle them head on. He just walks away so that he can carry on his ministry. The, the Bible commentator Matthew Henry uh, makes this observation about the person of the Lord Jesus. He says, as in the midst of Christ's great humiliations where there are proofs of his dignity, so in the midst of his greatest honours he gives proofs of his humility. And so we've seen Christ deal with these Pharisees. We've seen Christ heal this man. Uh, we've seen such a clear statement of who he is and what he can do. And yet, he possesses this great humility also. You see, Jesus knows and understands that his preaching work is not yet done. He knows that the time for his death is not yet come. And so there's no great protest from him against these Pharisees. He takes no action against them. He does nothing to try and stop them or thwart their plans. He makes no great fuss. He raises no complaint, nor does he cause any great commotion. He simply takes himself off quietly to carry on his ministry elsewhere. I think there's something very instructive there for us. Gospel work isn't about picking fights with people. It's about preaching the gospel. Sometimes your enemy will imprison you or confine you, as happened to many of the apostles. So what do you do then? Well, you proceed with your gospel ministry in your state of confinement. That's what they did. That's how they show us. Whenever they were arrested or imprisoned, they just carried on preaching. They just saw it as another opportunity to preach the gospel. But Jesus shows us if you do have the liberty to walk away or to run away so that you can continue elsewhere, well, you're completely free to use that liberty to do just that. And of course, Jesus didn't run away scared to go into hiding somewhere. He withdrew himself from those who would destroy him so that he can carry on elsewhere. And in doing so, he shows us this is a perfectly permissible course of action to take. It's exactly what he instructed his disciples to do back in chapter 10. Just walk away. There are plenty more opportunities, plenty more people for gospel preaching. Go to them. And you also see here a request which Jesus would frequently make, that the people would not make too much of him. Given his reputation already at this point, that sounds a rather strange thing perhaps, but don't make me known. Why would he say that? Why would he do that? Why does he not want people running around with placards uh, saying, come and listen to Jesus? Well, it demonstrates great humility. It demonstrates great obedience as he continues in the work which is causing such a strong reaction from the Pharisees. But you see, public acclaim 
is not what his ministry is about. Now, the Pharisees were all about public acclaim. They loved to be seen in the marketplaces. They loved to be welcomed and recognized and greeted in the marketplaces. Ah, there's a Pharisee for you. But that's not what Jesus is after. That kind of self-serving attitude is not his way at all. The Pharisees loved public acclaim. For them, that was much of their reward, just to receive it. But Jesus, Jesus wants the poor in spirit to have that which only he can give. But not simply to draw attention to himself, but because he genuinely loves them and he genuinely cares for them and he wants them to have what he alone can give. And so we read that the multitude follow him Verse 15. But it's not because he's doing things to organise that or to orchestrate that. But that's their reaction to him. They continue to flock to him as he teaches and as he heals. And in order that many more yet may receive this ministry from him, he asks them to keep quiet in part so that he can continue uninterrupted because there are many more yet who he wants to reach. It's not a mark of holiness or righteousness to make it your goal to attract attention. That's all of self and all of pride. Stirring up controversy wherever you go is not some sort of medal of honour for the Christian. So you don't go about trying to produce it. Now, of course, it may be that you do stir up controversy in gospel work, but you don't make it your aim. There's no special reward in heaven for those who manage to intentionally stir up those who would oppress us just to try and give the impression that you're serving the Lord must have been more zealous and daring than everybody else's because look at the response I got. There's none of that in Christ. So there can never be any of that in us. Jesus just makes sure that the threats of the Pharisees don't prevent him from taking the gospel to the many other lost ones in Israel who still need to hear what he has to say. That's what's on his heart and that's what's driving him. He's filled with compassion and mercy for those who have not yet heard what he needs to say. And Jesus here surely is providing us with an example. What, what does it mean to be as wise as, as wise as a serpent and as gentle as a dove, as he told his disciples in chapter 10. Well, here he gives his own demonstration of it. He doesn't rise to that provoking that he's receiving from the Pharisees. He doesn't rise to it. He just walks away from it. Well, they've made their choice about me. There are many more yet, though, who need to hear. Let me go to them. That, that's what we see in Christ. That's his heart. And as Matthew recalls these things for us, it's one more opportunity for him to take us back to the Old Testament. As Matthew continues to pile on the evidence of the Messiahship of this Jesus of Nazareth, that, that this Jesus is the chosen one, the promised one. And Matthew says, even this event, 
between Jesus and the Pharisees is a demonstration of that. Even the, the way that Jesus is behaving when he's provoked like this is a demonstration that he is the Messiah and that he is God's chosen one. And so we see the glories of Christ being foretold from verse 18 to 21, as Matthew refers us back to Isaiah chapter 42, from verse 18. My servant whom I've cho chosen, my beloved in whom I'm, my soul is well pleased, I'll put my spirit upon him, declare he will declare justice to the Gentiles. This, of course, is written down as the father speaking of his son, here in the person of Jesus is God's chosen servant in the work of redemption. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. It's this one. No one else is qualified for this task but this chosen one, this appointed one. None other is fit to wear this crown of righteousness but Jesus. And so what humility he displays in his dealings with the Pharisees, because he's come as a servant. He's come to serve. He's come to seek and to save the lost. And so we see him behaving with great humility towards these Pharisees. He could call down a legion of angels and just snuff them out. But that's not what he's about. Their, their day will come. Their day of judgment will come. But not today. And he endures all of their false accusations. He endures all of their threats against him. He doesn't rise to it. He doesn't react to it. He doesn't respond. He just gets on faithfully with the task God has given him. See, Jesus understands better than anyone else that all things in this world work themselves out according to God's eternal purposes. It is, it is not yet Christ's time to die so he knows the Father will secure his safekeeping. The Father will uh, secure his ability to continue his ministry, that which has been placed in his hands for today. And so we know he'll do the same for you. You can trust him to do the same for you. The Father will be as faithful for you as he was for his own Son. He's the God who never changes. And just as Christ could just relax, as it were, in his Father's care, so can you. Jesus is the well-beloved Son of the Father. All through eternity past, this work of salvation has, a, has been agreed between them. That They're in this covenant together, if you like. How deep the Father's love for the Son how faithful the loving obedience of the Son to his Father. Your salvation and mine hangs on this. And so Christ will, will complete that which the Father has given him to do. And in this love within the Godhead, your salvation and mine is secure. Because look at the promises that are given to Christ by the Father. I will put my spirit on him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles, the fullness of the Holy Spirit is upon Christ. All the might and grace and wisdom of heaven are his for the completion of his redeeming and atoning work, and he shall not fail. 
The Pharisees have no care for the spiritual well-being of the Gentiles. The Gentiles, they're nothing more than dogs to them. Hence their contempt for the Samaritans, for example. But Christ's saving work, well, that that must go on, not only for the Jews, but for the whole world. Declaring justice to the Gentiles is a way of speaking about the gospel. The justice of God, well, the justice of God declares that the wages of sin is death. But the justice of God has been satisfied through the death of another on your behalf, so that you might be reconciled to God. Now the Pharisees are clueless as to the victory over sin and death that Jesus will secure, even for despised Gentiles. And so for now, their plans to destroy him will come to nothing. And even when they finally do get their day, even when they do finally get their chance, remember this, it will all be on God's terms. And it will all be according to the scripture. Because God's eternal promises stand all through earth's history. Verse 19 speaks of the humble nature of Christ's ministry. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He doesn't set out to cause quarrels and arguments. He doesn't set out to cause great commotions amongst the people. Now, it did sometimes result in that. You read through the Acts of the Apostles and you read about Paul's ministry. And sometimes his preaching did cause great commotions, but it's not because he set out to achieve that or accomplish that. That's just the reaction of sinful men and women towards the gospel. But Jesus shows us here, nothing is done in order to provoke Nothing is done in order to generate great public acclaim. He doesn't arrive in town to a great fanfare. He doesn't send the disciples running on ahead of him, banging a drum, putting up posters and handing out flyers. He just arrives in great humility to preach the gospel and to heal the sick. He doesn't book the local arena to hold a huge campaign. It's the people following him. They find out for themselves who he is. They follow him. But he goes about his own work in meekness and in quiet faithfulness. And such is often the way for faithful gospel ministry. Meekness, quiet faithfulness in making Christ known. And perhaps you're thinking, well, you know, I'm, like we were reminded with the children, you know, who am I? Uh, I'm, I'm no great man or woman. I've got no great, great gifts. I've got no special abilities. But Jesus shows us that so much of gospel work is just done in meekness and in quiet faithfulness. Can you not do that for him? And we see that Jesus has removed himself from the abrasive atmosphere that's being caused by the Pharisees. Because Jesus, for the most part, in verse 20, he just ministers with gentleness and he ministers in grace. And so he removes himself 
from that corrosive, abrasive atmosphere that the Pharisees are stirring up. There will be times, particularly in Matthew's Gospel, uh, some chapters later, when Jesus will rebuke the Pharisees very sharply, very severely. But for the other people that Jesus is ministering to, well, he knows very well most people, if he spoke to most people like he spoke to the Pharisees on occasions, they would just crumble under such harsh words. It would just crush them. So to most people, well, he just comes with a heart full of tenderness and mercy and compassion. He just wants to impart saving new life to them. And so we read here, Matthew quotes it from from Isaiah, a bruised reed. He hasn't come to break bruised reeds. A, A bruised reed is already weak. It won't take much for the stem to be broken completely. Jesus speaks and ministers with a healing balm, with the aid of restoring and making well. A smoking flax is barely a light, just enough heat to generate a little smoke. How little it would take just to snuff it out. There's barely anything there to begin with. Christ has come to rekindle, not to quench. All it needs is the gentle breeze of the gospel from the mouth of the Saviour and that tiny ember can burst into flame and be restored. That's the ministry of Christ. That's gospel ministry. Till he sends forth justice to victory. This gospel grace in the Lord Jesus Christ will continue until all who are to be saved shall be saved, till he sends forth justice to victory. And even from the nations of the Gentiles, many will trust in the precious name and work of Christ. This is the whole meaning and purpose of Jesus and his gospel. So I want you to see again the great tenderness of Christ. You have nothing to fear and you have heaven to gain if you will come to him. Perhaps you're a Christian. Right now you're feeling like that bruised reed, almost ready to break. Such are the trials and sorrows and fears that you're going through right now. He will not allow you to break. He will keep you. He will strengthen you. His grace will be sufficient. Perhaps you're a Christian and right now your faith your vigour, well, you feel just like that smoking flax, so poor, barely a light. Your faith seems so small, so weak, and you're full of fear that even the little faith that you have, you will lose. No. It will not be quenched. Christ will not permit it to be quenched.
And remember, even weak faith in Christ will save you. Now, I didn't know what Joshua was going to say, but you see, remember, it doesn't, it doesn't depend upon the size of the bat. It depends upon the hand that's holding it. Even weak faith in Christ will save because you're not saved by the strength of your faith. You're saved by Christ. And even weak faith is enough because Christ is enough. Even small faith in him, if it is in him, is in the one who has the power to save you. He will not permit the flame of your faith to be extinguished. You are his. You are his forever. Nowhere else will you find such compassion. Nowhere else will you find such mercy and such loving kindness as is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you who do not know him, you have nothing to fear from him. Only grace awaits you. There is to be found in Jesus only true peace and lasting rest for your soul.